By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by Adam from Adamium Golf. This episode of The Sweet Spot is brought to you by the Indoor Golf Shop. They are the place to go online if you're setting up a golf simulator for your home or your business. They've got all the major brands of launch monitors like Foresight, Skytrack, Unicor, Flightscope, and they make pretty much anything else you need, like enclosures, screens, hitting mats. They can get you projectors. And if you need help, you can give them a call. Talk to Gerald or Hunter over there, and they can give you an idea of what will suit best for your budget, the size of your space in your media room, basement, or garage. Thanks for their support. And you can check them out at shopindoorgolf.com. So we get a lot of questions from people since we started this show almost a year ago now. and one of the persistent questions that I seem to get, and Adam, I know you get it too, is how do you get more out of golf lessons, kind of like best practices? And of course, you and I are, are both in support of golfers getting customized help on their swing when they need it. So we've brought a guy who I think, I'm pretty sure, I don't know if I could verify this, but I think you've given more lessons in the last two to three years than anyone on the planet. We are talking to Shaheen Nakjavani. What's up, man? I think for sure, number one in online lessons. I don't know about in yeah. person, to be honest. I've scaled back a little bit the last year or so, but online, I'm, I mean, I don't think anyone comes close, if I'm being completely honest. Well, there was this, I think there was this article that came out probably over a year ago or something that said you had done 5,000 online lessons in what, 2019 was it or 2020? Yeah, I'm up to 8,000 so far. Wow, that's insane. Mm -hmm. I don't know how that's possible. Adam, does that blow your mind? 
it takes me so long to do a lesson, but I, I've got a lot of moving parts of the plans that I do, so it's it's probably a little different. But I, yeah, I can't fathom that. <laughs> so we thought it would be cool to talk to you since you've given so many lessons and you do give a lot of lessons in person at your academy mm -hmm. that we would kind of go through best practices. And, and Adam certainly has given uh, over your career, probably you've spent thousands of hours with students as well. So we'll get both of your input on this. Before we get into it, if people, I think a lot of our listeners know you, Shaheen, but you know, if you just want to give us a quick intro, we've got a lot of questions to get to, but just tell us a little bit about yourself for everyone who doesn't maybe know who you are at this point. Yeah, I'm a coach based in Montreal, Quebec, where it is currently very cold outdoors, as you can all imagine. And I work with a bunch of tour players ranging from PGA, Corn Ferry, Champions Tour, and all that. And I do a lot of work, obviously, online, which I guess, which is where we met and where Adam and I met as well through all my social media channels where I post a bunch of, obviously, content based on my students' improvements and all that. So one of the things that I think a lot of people follow you for and what some of the questions we got is you're you're always talking about swing matchups. You're kind of like the swing matchup guy and you're very thorough in explaining why a stronger grip won't necessarily lead to one ball flight or the other. And, and I think your your videos are certainly helpful to many players understanding all the matchups and the swing and just beyond that. So we did get some questions on Twitter about the golf swing, but we're not going to be talking about the golf swing today. Perhaps we could do that in another episode with you. But I guess a good place to start with all the, the lessons you've given, what are some of the top mistakes that come to mind when a golfer goes to get lessons from you or, or other, you know, teaching professionals that you've spoken to over the year, like what are some of the biggest mistakes that they make that come to mind? I'd say the biggest is a, a lack of preparation. Everybody comes in with this idea. And certainly this, this experience, I, I've received much more from golfers who are not very well versed in the industry. You know, people who don't play every week, people who don't practice every week. We get a lot more of those in Montreal than I would have to assume you guys get in the U.S., just because golf is obviously not the most popular sport here. So people don't necessarily understand the industry as well. But a lack of preparation in the sense of like not understanding that they are coming for a lesson where they might not see, you know, zero to 100 of improvement right off the bat. People that come with a lack of preparation in terms of what am I looking to gain out of this lesson? You know, the, the, that's one of the first questions I ask people when they come and see me is like, what is your goal of this lesson? What are you trying to accomplish in this hour? Because I can go a, a, a wide range of ways with any person who comes and see me, depending on what they actually want out of the lesson. I'm not going to give you a, a swing lesson on something specific if that's not what you're here for, because then you're not going to feel like you're leaving the lesson satisfied, right? So people don't necessarily know the, the, the reason why they come and take a lesson in the first place. They're just like, well, I want to be more consistent. It's like, yeah, well, every single person on the planet wants to be more consistent. Like, you're going to have to give me a little bit of a more detailed answer than that as to why you're here. And that lack of preparation can go a long ways. It can go in terms of like, not really, what I love to see from, from students would be like somebody who comes in with a good understanding of where their ball flight tendencies are, a good understanding of where their strike tendencies are, a good understanding of where their scores range from, how often they play in practice. And really, if that play and practice time is going to change because I have people who come and see me and they're like, well, I'm going to, you know, I, I hit balls once a week. I'm like, okay, is that going to change now that you're taking a lesson? Cause I can understand why you wouldn't want to go to the driver range more often. If you're clueless as to what to work on, like 
you know, what's the use of going to hit balls if I really don't know what I'm doing? I'm wasting my time at the end of the day. Well, if I give you a game plan and you'll know what you're working on, is that going to change? Are you going to up that and scale it to two, three times a week? Is that going to stay at once a week? And people don't necessarily have any of that preparation when they come and see me, at least certainly the the higher handicapper. Obviously, when it comes to better players, they're very prepared for the most part. But um, I think that's the the worst thing people do is is they come there without a general understanding of really their game or what their goal even is before they start the lesson. Yeah, I'd agree with that, definitely. Yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that, Adam, based on your career? Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest thing the biggest thing that I want to know as an instructor that most people don't have on hand is, you know, what's going to make you better in, in terms of the ball flight patterns. You know, what's, what's your ball flight direction? What's the curvature? And what are the reasons for you dropping shots? You know, ground contact, face contact, face direction, you know, the ones we talk about all the time. You know, people always come with, well, I, I need to do this in my swing or I need to do that in my swing. And that's fine, but usually they can't make the connections to why they need to do that as well. It's like, oh, well, my buddy told me, my 18 handicap buddy told me, or I saw it on YouTube. So yeah, just, yeah, understanding their own patterns. Um, and, th- and that can be quite difficult to get out of some, of some people on lessons. You know, I often have to give people homework, give them sorts of feedback to collect as well, like, spray the face to get some of that data, uh, monitor your shot patterns as well. I've had people say, tell me that they tend to miss left. And then I say, right, go and get a, a track man report for me and everything's missing right. <laughs> we have to kind of square this up a little. I mean, that's quite rare, but it, it can happen. Is it an important distinction to make? Because you're kind of like leading in me into one of my next questions, which is like, how much or how little information are you looking for from the student? And I would certainly agree with the two of you that, you know, if I'm going to show up for a lesson, I want to talk about my ball flight and what I'm seeing on the course. And certainly if I have stats to back that up, but then sometimes, you know, I hear these stories from teachers that I'm friends with and the student shows up with their own preconceived notion about what's wrong with their golf swing. And they're kind of like instructing you in the game. They're like, well, I, I do this with my grip and, and they're, they're explaining to you what's wrong with their swing and kind of like saying like, Hey, this is what I want you to fix. Is there a distinction to make when someone goes down the technical speak versus you'd rather hear about ball flight issues? Like, is that something that you deal with a lot, Shaheen? Yeah. And to be honest, I think my answer might differ from most people in the sense that I don't necessarily mind if someone comes in with preconceived notions on where their swing is. I'd rather that than having no answer whatsoever. Because the truth is 30, 40, 50% of the time, they're probably going to actually be correct in some of the information they're giving me about what's wrong with their golf swing. They might not necessarily, like Adam said, have the understanding as to why or correlate that to the ball flight or whatever, but they do have a general idea based on what they've seen on video of like, hey, I don't like this in my golf swing. You know, I might not be able to change it right away depending on where the pattern actually is, but at least they see problems, which I don't mind. I also believe that the more information people tell me, the more they flush out all that information from their mind so we can actually kind of start fresh in the lesson. Because if someone comes into a lesson with like a thought in their head about what they're doing wrong, and for people like me and Adam who are very outspoken on the internet about what we think about the golf swing, people have seen our videos on the internet before they've taken a lesson with us a lot of times, right? So someone's going to come see me for a lesson. They've seen all the stuff I've posted on Instagram, on Twitter, And so they're coming in with this like, oh, I saw you post about this and then I was looking at it in my golf swing and now I think this is a problem. Okay, well, I mean, okay, let's start with that, right? Like 
as much information as they can flush out of their mind, the better. Because if they have those thoughts in their brain and they don't actually like tell me them in the lesson and we're not actually communicating it, at the end of the lesson, they might be like, oh, well, he told me all these good things, but he never really mentioned this and I'm still thinking about it. Now they're going to leave the lesson still with that thought at the back of their mind of what about this? Maybe this is still a problem. Maybe Shaheen didn't see it. You know, like they don't know what's going on. Maybe I did see it and I just chose not to talk about it. But in their mind, they don't know that, right? So the more information people tell me about their swing when they come in, whether it's right or wrong, I don't necessarily mind because I would rather you flush out all the information possible. And then I'll tell you what I believe is good about the information you gave me, what I believe you can completely scratch from your mind altogether. And then I'll add on new stuff if necessary during that process. That sounds completely reasonable to me. Probably the main question I like to ask someone is, what do you feel you need to do to improve? And then I just let them riff after that. Because that, you know, if they're mechanical, they're going to come out with that information. If they're less mechanical, you know, if they've had data on TrackMan, they'll come out with those numbers as well. So it really gets into their mindset and gets into their goals. What do you feel like you have to do to improve? And it also gives you an understanding of their knowledge, what they currently know about what is important to improvement. Another thing that, you know, we, we often talk about time on this show and our last two episodes that are out now on, on becoming a scratch golfer, we talked about time a lot. And then you mentioned initially when mistakes people make, you ask them like, well, how often are you practicing? Mm -hmm. And I, I view lessons as a, as a two-way road. Of course, there's an expectation from the student that you're paying the instructor and that they're going to give you value for that money. But at the same time, and I'm not trying to place blame on golfers. I'm just trying to manage expectations. And I know you do too, when you're starting a relationship with a golfer, I think it's important for people to think about time and commitment. And you mentioned that he says, well, are you, are you only going to practice once a week? Because golfers are coming to you at all different levels. And for some people, I'm sure it's, it's more simple fixes and others you're, you're doing more of an overhaul in their patterns. And if you don't have that time to put in the work, and, and Adam and I have had separate episodes on making swing changes and how much time it takes. I think that's something people should really consider before they're committing to lessons in general and then finding an instructor is that, you know, you're not just going to show up and things are magically going to be fixed for you. There's going to be some element of diagnosis and then you're going to have some time in between lessons where you're going to have to put some work in. So can you expand a little bit on that notion, like how much time you typically see amongst your players in between lessons and stuff like that? I know you can't give me exact numbers, but at least some general thoughts on like what people can expect before they go into lessons so they can have a good experience. Okay. So I'll, I'll answer this in several ways. Number one, when someone comes to see me, if the reason why it's so important for me to know how often they're going to practice is not because I'm trying to schedule out the game plan for them of we're going to work on this for two weeks. We're going to work on this for two weeks. I actually don't believe that. I never timestamp anything going forward. I don't project forward. If we're going to work on wrist angles for three weeks and then we're going to work on something else. I don't know. We might work on wrist angles for 20 minutes. We might work on wrist angles for six months. I mean, it completely depends on how fast people learn. And that's the distinction I make a lot between learning in school and learning here is that, you know, you get failing grades in school if you can't keep up with the pace of the teacher. I'm not here to give you a failing grade. I'm here to make sure you pass with every swing change you're going to make. And so I want that comfort level to grow. I want that skill level to grow with the swing change. And that might take time. 
right? So the truth is, I don't want to tell people we're going to work on this for a certain set number of time. And I know that might even be another question that we can get into even even further because I saw some of them on Twitter. But point being, I don't like to timestamp how long we're going to work on stuff. The reason it's important for me to know how much time people are going to actually give me after the lesson or between lessons is because that is going to dictate a lot of what I'm actually going to teach them. Meaning I have a player come and see me with a certain pattern. I can go 17 different ways with this pattern. Now, depending on the person's schedule, depending on the person's physical capabilities, depending on all these different things that we can gather beforehand as information, I'm going to make the best decision that I feel for the player of we're going to go down this specific route. If someone comes and sees me and they're saying, hey, dude, I have one day a week I can play golf and I have maybe half an hour before every round of golf where I can practice, probably not going to make a huge swing change with that person because the odds are that person will never be able to commit to it. Whether I believe that's the best long-term plan or not is irrelevant in this situation because they don't have the ability to actually make that change. So what am I going to do? I might give them more of a quicker fix, more of a band-aid. Well, the truth is that person's playing once a week. That's all they can rely on. That's the best we can do in this situation. I'm giving them the best option, right? If a player comes and sees me and says, I have two, three, four days a week, great. Now we have a little bit more time. Now I can maybe proceed with a different type of adjustment with this player because they're giving me the time that I know they can commit to actually making this change. And I mentioned that on timestamp changes, there are obviously patterns we come across, like Adam too, I'm sure knows, okay, if we make a grip change, the odds are, and it's not perfect, but the odds are it's going to take between this much time and this much time for the player to get comfortable with the grip. Sometimes it's on the low end of that. Sometimes it's on the high end of that, but we know more or less the range. And of course, outliers are going to exist. So when I'm making a change with a player, it's like, oh, I want to make this downswing change. I want to get the player to move their body differently. I, I know going into it, it's going to take at the bare minimum X amount of time. And I know at the maximum, it's probably going to take this much time. Well, if the player is not giving me that availability in their schedule, there's no way I can give them that swing change. So in order for me to do my job better, I need to know how much the player is willing to play in practice. And if they come in and they lie about it because they're afraid to tell me that they're not going to practice it much, <laughs> which happens a lot. You'd be surprised how often someone comes in. Oh, and I'm not surprised. They're, they're going to tell you like, hey, dude, I, I practice three times a week. And in reality, like they're there at the range for half an hour a week. I mean, you're only penalizing yourself because now I'm going to give you a swing change based off the schedule that you told me because you were afraid to tell me the truth. And it's only going to hurt you in the long run because you can't actually commit to the change I'm giving you. But I can only go with what the person tells me. If the person lies to me at the end of the day, I mean, the relationship just won't work in the long run. Yeah, that's one of the first questions I ask is how often do you practice and please tell the truth? You know, even if it's just one hour a week, I don't mind. I just want, I just want the honest answer with that. 100%. Yeah, I come back to a similar notion that I see a lot of golfers who like if I bring up the topic of lessons in general, and let's face it, not most golfers are not taking lessons. I think the the estimates always between 10 to 20% of active players are, mm -hmm. are taking lessons at most, which you know, it is what it is, but for the players who do commit to lessons, one of the expectations, and I've taken lessons, maybe not in quite some time, but I've benefited when I was a junior golfer and even probably 10 years ago from the lessons I had. I think back to them and that, you know, you show up, hopefully you get good information, but you can't come back the next time without working on what was discussed. And hopefully, you know, we'll talk about practice plans and stuff you can ask instructors for. 
but some golfers think like, oh, I'm just checking off the box of showing up. No different than, you know, Adam and I talking about practice all the time. Some golfers think simply by showing up, it's entitling you to better performance. And I hate, I really can't stand people wasting money. So that's always like the, the one thing I constantly say about lessons is like, do not commit unless you are committed to doing work on top of it because interacting with the instructor during the lesson is step one. Step two is making the changes and doing the practice. So that to me is always like number one. Adam, do you have any, I don't want to like ramrod over you. Do you have some questions for Shaheen that you want to shoot off? I mean, just on on that topic, people think that if I've learned it mentally, then I've learned it physically. That's what lots of people think. So they come in, oh, all I have to do is understand it up here and then I can go out in the course and play. So like, that's one of the worst things you can see as an instructor. You just give a lesson and they're like, oh, cool. Can't wait for the tournament tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if you're a good instructor, you're going to ask those questions beforehand. Do you have any big events coming up? But that used to happen early on in my career. Certainly, I'd forget that question. In terms of the question, I suppose it stems from the common one was, how do you know when someone's ready for the next lesson? So how do you know when something is learned or ingrained enough to add more information on? Because one of the biggest things that we have to deal with as instructors is cognitive overload, right? We don't want to overload the brain of the pupil in front of us. So especially in, in a live lesson, that's a lot easier to determine, right? Because you can see if someone's getting worked up or if they, if they can't do what you're asking of them, they're probably overloaded. But how do, you, how do you know when they're ready for next lesson? And how do you know when they're overloaded, especially with online lessons as well? I'll say that over the years, I've gotten a lot better at not overloading players with information. And I think that just comes with experience. I mean, it's written all over the internet that people tend to get overwhelmed. You know, you see people showing up at the range with seven swing tips and you're like, you're expecting to do all seven of these. I mean, you can't even do the first two. What do you mean? The last, the, like the last five or four completely forgotten about. So I, I'm a firm believer of like, when someone comes to see me, I never give more than two pieces of information in terms of things to change. And a lot of times one of them will be static, meaning it'll be a grip change, a setup change of some sort. The second one will be an actual movement change. Very rarely do I do two pieces of information in terms of the actual movement of the club or the body. And if I do, I'll try to separate the backswing and the downswing into two separate thoughts, just because it'll be a little easier for them. So anybody who's giving more than two pieces of information, I think you're wasting your time and you're giving the player no chance to succeed, unfortunately. In terms of when they're ready, I'll say this, I've learned at least in my in-person coaching how to test people without telling them I'm testing them because as soon as people are aware of what you're doing as a coach, I almost feel like a lot of times they'll lie about it or they'll put so much focus into what you're trying to do with them that like, and I'll give you an example of this that makes more sense. Player tells me they're ready for a certain swing change. And I'm like, okay, we're going to focus on this now. We're going to do this on, in the simulator or outdoors and whatever. They're going to try so hard to do the second piece well. And a lot of times the first one will not be done as well. So the initial swing change you gave the player, you see some bit of regression in that area as soon as they take on the second piece. Well, they're not going to believe it. I'm going to film it on video. I'm going to show them. They're going to see it or their contact's going to suffer or the ball flight's going to suffer as soon as they take on the second piece of information. So in person, it's really easy to test them because when I give a second piece of information for a player who tells me they're ready to take on a new swing change, 
I am never, ever looking at how well they do the second piece of information. I honestly could care less. What's most important for me is how well are you still doing the first part that we spoke about while thinking about doing the second part? Whether they accomplish the second part or not is kind of irrelevant. It's the first lesson. They're probably not going to do it well right away anyways. Let's be realistic about it. But what I'm looking at when my eyes are guided is on the first part. I'm not telling them that because they think that they're trying to do the second one. So what are they going to do? They're going to put all their energy and focus into the second swing change, the new swing change we're now working on. But in reality, I, I don't care how well you do that. Did you do the first one well? Because if all your mind goes into the second one and that first one dropped off dramatically and you lost half or three quarters of the percentage of the change that we made, then at some point in time, it's like, hey, buddy, look at this video on camera. I mean, you were trying to work on not roll the club inside and you were doing a good job before we added the second piece. Now we added the second piece and your club is 10 degrees inside the hands in the takeaway again. So what does that tell you? Do you think you're ready to work on the second step? Probably not, right? And I just experienced this online. So I'm not going to claim to be perfect as a coach. Like I, I'm, I'm always willing to test the player because at the end of the day, I always want to give the player the benefit of the doubt. If you personally are telling the truth and only you know deep down as the student that you're telling the truth, that you're ready to take on a new swing change, then I will happily test you about it. I'm not going to tell you I'm testing you. I'm going to tell you we're working on the second step, but I am in my mind testing you to see how well you're still doing the first part of this entire situation, this relationship. If you succeed at it, Great. We're going to jump into the second step because you've proven to me that you can do it while still thinking about a new piece of information. If you fail at it, well, guess what, buddy? Unfortunately, we're taking a step back. So the truth is I'm always testing players. I'm always giving them the benefit of the doubt. I would say 80% of the time they are moving ahead too quickly. Let's be realistic. And you're taking that step back. But there's no harm in hitting 10, 15 balls with a player and having them see it for themselves on video afterwards that they're not doing it as well. When it comes to online, obviously we're not there in person to stare at the people, the, the student for every single shot they're hitting. So what I'll do is I'll usually have a much shorter term follow-up with the player. So it's no different than I'm recreating that environment that I just did with the person when I'm coaching live. But when I'm on the internet, rather than saying, hey, go work on the second step for a week, I'll be like, hey, dude, you want to send me some videos of just you doing the rehearsal and then hitting a couple balls. I just want to see if you get the idea of what we're trying to do with the second step. And once again, in reality, I could care less how do well they're doing the second step. I'm fully looking at, did you lose some of the takeaway? Did you do it? Because I just had a player today, literally on my phone, that as soon as he took on a second piece of information, that first one was so poorly done that it's like he wasn't even close to moving ahead. And people always think if they can do it once, They can do it forever, right? How many times does that happen? You're giving a player something to work on in the lesson. They do it two, three times. All right, dude, what's next? What's next? What's next is you do this for another 2,000 times. Like, what do you mean what's next? Just because you're able to do it now doesn't mean you're able to do it comfortably on the golf course. Doesn't mean you're able to do it comfortably on the golf course when there's penalties on your left and your right. Doesn't mean you're able to do it on the golf course with penalties around when you're now thinking about a second swing change to make. Like there's steps, there is an evolution to swing changes. Being able to do it once on the driving range is the first of 10 steps. That by no means tells me that you're ready to take on new pieces of information. I understand logically why a player would think that, but that's just simply not the reality, unfortunately. And each layer of information can be a regression for someone. You know, someone you 
they do it without a ball at first, then you add a ball and things can change, things can regress because obviously their brain's thinking about something new. Then, you know, another way that I see is someone ready for something new is if you add a target, just a, a target on the range and you give them a game where they have to, you know, you have to hit this target seven or eight times out of 10, all of a sudden they, their focus shifts externally and that swing piece can be lost. And then Taking it on the course is another issue. Take it into a, a tournament. All of these things can be areas of, of breaking down. I think people like to jump from one area. They like to almost teleport to, right, I'm going to take it straight out into the tournament. And it's like, that's a, a, a poor expectation to have. I mean, there are some people who can control their attention well enough that they can skip those steps. I know if you asked me to do a certain swing piece, and then you said, right, Adam, go and play a tournament. I want you to do that swing piece. I could do that if I wanted to. I'd probably play horrible in the tournament because I haven't done enough reps of it yet. But there are some people who can control their, their attention more. That's a trained skill. But certainly each each one of these layers can be an area of, of breakdown. Yeah, I mean, for me, coming from a more of a player's perspective, I think what Shaheen and, and Adam are, are describing is being able to move from the conscious to the subconscious. When you first make any type of change in the golf swing, obviously the exaggeration of it, it feels incredibly bizarre to you for the first time. And then as we've talked about, you know, in many of episodes, like there's this different layers of attention and pressure that kind of this checklist that that conscious to subconscious has to go through until you say like, okay, I, I, I am doing this and not necessarily thinking about it. This is a more natural movement to me now where initially it was not natural because it was a change. And that that is like, I, I think one of the most like complex topics in golf in general. It's just so different for each player based on their skill level, physical tendencies, abilities, how much time they've been in the game. It's a tough one. But one of my key takeaways from what you guys are saying, and I hope people get from this, is that patience and repetitions is hugely important when you're taking lessons. I think this will become better with technology. I think it's going to be an important shift soon. I know this technology already exists. And the guy who asked on Twitter, like, how do you know when someone's ready for the next lesson? I kind of jokingly told him, well, there is some uh, device out that they use in piano teaching at the moment that hooks up to your brain waves. Oh and it only, <laughs> yeah, it only unleashes a new piece of the music when you hit certain brain waves. And that relates strongly to whether you're in cognitive overload. So if you're trying a piece and you're having to think a lot about it, it produces certain brain waves and it won't unlock the next piece. But once it becomes more automatic, more unconscious, the brain waves change and it unlocks the next piece of music. So there'll certainly be devices that we can, we can use to measure those things in golf. And we could say, look, I think you're, you're in a different brain state here. I think you're ready for the, the next piece. But I love that test by Shaheen. I think that's probably one of the, the key tests to um, give them a second piece and see if the first one degrades or not. I think we, as golfers, you put conscious work off the course so that it eventually can turn into subconscious performance on the course. Because when you do have the pressure of the course, scoring, trouble looking at you, the most damaging thought to have before you execute the swing is, oh, is my shoulder doing that thing that Shaheen told me to? Like that's, you know, you want to move beyond that. And that's, that's hard to do, as we said. 
I have a really loaded question for you. And I know you're not afraid to tackle this because you're a guy who doesn't shy away from controversy. You're talking about me but, now? Yeah, I'm talking about you. All right, go. Cool. Shaheen. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're you're our guest. That's who I'm talking to. Okay, go. Cool. So the the question that I get over and over and over again from people is like, how do I find an instructor to work with? What are best practices? And I know there's no right answer for this because coaching golf instruction is like any other industry. There's bad, good, and best. And and you guys are both excellent at what you do, but not everyone's going to be able to work with Adam or Shaheen. In your experience, what are some ways that golfers can, you know, whether it's interview process, whatever, how can you find an instructor? That is the question I keep getting. And I know there's not a perfect answer, but take a stab at it. Okay, so for starters, we have the benefit, both Adam and I, of having information on the internet which acts as a portfolio. So when people take lessons with us, they already have somewhat of an understanding of what they're going to receive in the lesson. Not the communication part during the lesson, because a lot of this stuff is private, and obviously we don't share what happens between every single lesson and how we're talking to our students or whatever. But they have a general idea of our philosophies. They have a general idea of the type of players we work with. And they've seen enough improvement from our players to trust that, obviously, hopefully, 99% of the time, they're going to fall within that as well and improve. So we're very lucky on that part. The reality is 99% of coaches are not on the internet, right? Like as big as we think the social media realm is when it comes to golf instruction, it's very small. I mean, there are... Just like you said, there's 10, 15% of actual golfers who take lessons. There's probably 10 or 15% of instructors that are on the internet, maybe even less, I'd be willing to bet, to be honest. There's a lot of golf coaches out there who teach in these local clubs that are not posting information on the internet. So it's much more difficult to find someone. Now, if I were to hire, I don't know, whatever, let's say I was to hire a plumber for my house. Well, I could get really lucky and have an amazing plumber who fixes the job and does it really fast and doesn't charge a lot of money. Or I can hire a plumber who it's his first year out of training and he didn't come with someone and he hasn't experienced your problem before. And swing changes are problems that the more us as coaches experience, the less surprised we become with a player who comes and sees us. So anybody who comes and sees me now, I feel extremely confident that I've either seen this problem before or I know based on other theories that I have in my mind how to go about fixing them. And I'm sure Adam is the same. Well, there is some guesswork in that. If you are really afraid to hire a swing coach, either because you've had a bad experience before or because you're simply uncertain what makes a good swing coach, then try to find someone whose portfolio is online, like Adam's and mine, who's within your area and within your budget. And the truth is, although there's only 10% of coaches on the internet, these coaches are publicly showing you what they're going to give you in the lesson. So you have that understanding before. Now, if you like the way he's talking or she is talking on video, you'll know that you're going to probably communicate well with them in the lesson. If you are that afraid, I would always say try to find someone who you can see their information on the internet. If not, there is an element of risk involved. Maybe hire someone who's a little bit older, who uses launch monitors because they're looking at data maybe a little closer than someone who's a little more casual about it. Maybe 
through word of mouth, you can find someone who has worked with players that you know on a personal level and had good experiences. Word of mouth is the best way to go and find a coach. It's no different for us as coaches. We get that. We get people all the time who come in and they're like, oh, yeah, you worked with a buddy of mine. He really liked the lesson. Well, if you can't find someone on the Internet, then try to find someone you know who plays golf for a living or had a good experience with the lesson. Because at the end of the day, it's a guesstimation, right? Like you, you don't necessarily know going into it, just like I don't know when I'm hiring the plumber going into it, if the plumber is going to be amazing or he's going to be awful. I don't know that in advance. I can do my research on the internet through people I know. Maybe someone hired a plumber at some point who had a really good job. But at the end of the day, there's a risk involved. And unfortunately, that risk is always going to be there. That's just the, that's just the truth. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's there are so many different kinds of teachers and your geography is a limiting factor. You know, if you live in a, uh, a more populated area where golf is popular, like where I live on Long Island, there are tons of coaches to choose from. If I lived in a more rural area, it, you're probably only going to be choosing from a few coaches. But yeah, I, I think there's certainly a, a leap of faith. Go ahead, Shaheen. I know you want to chime in here. I will say this. If there's one and only positive for the golf industry that came out of this entire COVID experience over the last two years, it's that people who wanted to get better when they were stuck at home went to take an online lesson because they couldn't leave their house. I mean, within the first two months of COVID, when everyone was really badly in quarantine and stuck at home in lockdowns, every practice net on Amazon was sold out at Walmart, at any possible store you can imagine. There was nothing left. Right. So everybody was willing to do the work at home at that point. Now, people who were skeptic about wanting to take a lesson on on the Internet because they don't know, like, you know, they weren't 100 percent certain what that experience was going to be like. Those who took a chance, hopefully a large majority of them had a good enough experience where they now trust the process of an online lesson and continue to do so. And I gained a ton of people who were first timers of online lessons, had a good experience, stayed and now they trusted if you are afraid of finding someone locally, trust that online lessons can be a great way to go about it. And I'm obviously very busy, but I'm not the only coach who's very busy. There's a lot of them who are very busy. There's a lot of them who are very experienced. And the more lessons we give online, if anything, I would even go as far as to say that online lessons have made me a 20 times better coach in person. Because if I'm able to communicate something really well or what I feel like is really well now with someone who's not even with me next to me, like in real life, you can only imagine when the person's actually in front of me and I can have feedback back and forth right away, how much better my communication is going to become when I'm in a real lesson. So if you are afraid, take an online lesson, find someone who maybe is not crazy expensive, someone who's within your budget or even less than that, someone who doesn't charge too much and see what they're about because online lessons can be just as valuable as finding someone in person. Yeah, that kind of leads me into one of the other questions I had. I know, Adam, you, you do some online lessons. I know it's not your, your main thing. And Shaheen, it's, hard, you've done... it's hard to get an online lesson with me. You have to jump through hoops. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm going to make it me, more I, available, I, but yeah. I've sent some people your way and you're like, I'm oh, sorry. Shaheen, obviously you've done thousands of them. Obviously there are limitations to doing online lessons because as you mentioned earlier, you're not with the person physically. You're not seeing certain things that you would it's a different experience and it's it's mostly about looking down the line and on the side and maybe you don't have your launch monitor next to you so you're not getting as much feedback. Give me some pros and cons of online lessons then let, let's go into that topic a bit. First pro of online lesson, you don't need to be next to me, the obvious, right? Sure. You could, you could work with you, you're in Montreal and someone could work with you. You could be anywhere in the world. 
Second pro of online lesson, and I would argue this is the biggest pro of them all. A lot of people who take lessons, and even more so with us these days, people who take lessons with Adam and I, I don't know how to say this without coming across like overly confident, but they come in and a lot of times I actually experience people that are intimidated, like they're afraid of taking a lesson with us. For whatever reason, you know, they're shy, they're reserved. Oh my God, I'm nervous. This is Adam. I've never had a lesson. You work with so many great players. They get very intimidated. They don't want to see, they don't want you to see them hit a bad shot. Now, what I tell everybody, which is the truth, is like, dude, if you weren't hitting bad shots, you wouldn't be here in the first place. So like, don't be afraid. Like I'm com- I'm going into this lesson under the expectation that you're probably going to make some bad swings in front of me or else why are you taking a golf lesson? And that's not always the case, but it's the case, you know, 99% of the time. When you are taking an online lesson, a huge pro is the fact that you can practice on your own time and in your own way, meaning you don't have someone there judging you behind you. You don't have someone who's looking at your every shot. You don't have someone who's forcing you to go about the structure a certain way. You can go about it your way. I, as a coach, can give suggestions of how to go about it. I can create practice plans and game plans, but it doesn't mean you have to follow it to a T. It's a suggestion for you on how to improve. From there, you can make your own spin on it, your own unique spin of how you want to practice based on your own scheduling and time and go about it. So the ability to practice without the fear of having people there watching you, I think is a huge one. And even more so for beginners who are afraid of topping the ball 15 times in front of a coach. Because as bad as it looks as the coach, I can certainly understand from a player's perspective that they're like shy and they're like, oh man, am I ever going to hit a good shot in front of this guy or a girl? You know, like they want to, they want to make good swings as much as you want to see them hit good swings. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure in that. And so not being there with them, watching them practice is a huge plus for some people who are a little more on the reserve side, I find. What do you think about that, Adam? And then I'll go into like more pros and cons. Let's just take a quick break there and we will be right back with Adam's answer. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonder Lux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash SWEETSPOT. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire, so it's a great place to get help. Now here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And we're back. Adam. All right. Yeah, I remember you saying about them hitting bad shots in front of you. That's probably the first thing I say in a lesson when, when they when they start hitting shots is, you know, feel free to get all the bad ones out now, warm, warm up. And even when you make a change, I set the expectation levels as, you know, you're probably going to have a few bad ones at the start. That's absolutely fine. Sometimes we even switch to a foam ball anything to get rid of their pressure or their need to hit a good shot because one of the biggest things that stops someone make a change in their swing is the desire to hit a good shot because when your brain is in that i need to hit a good shot mode your old motor pattern is just going to come out your ability to change drops down so one of my teaching friends he said he used to give them a change and say right i'm just going to nip to the restroom for a little bit I'll, i'll be back in five minutes so use these next five minutes to you know just tinker around with this and don't feel bad about hitting any any poor shots with it so that was a kind of tactic that i use or i just say it more overtly to them i I think from a, a more outsider's perspective i think online lessons are a good idea for certain people i think the drawback is there are some instructors like you guys are used to doing them you have a system I'm sure you're very efficient with it. And then there are some coaches who are like, are just getting into it. And the process is obviously clumsier for them. So certainly if someone wanted to pursue online lessons, you you want to go with someone who's more experienced. There's a difference there because you can't be adjusting on the fly. Obviously the, the pro is they're not worried about performing in front of you. I've I felt that performance anxiety before in front of a coach. You want to kind of impress them. But at the same time, they're not seeing you work through that. So I guess that's the con to it. What are reasonable expectations for someone who is pursuing online lessons? Like, what do you think is a good... I mean, Shaheen, you, you, your package is kind of like, I guess, probably one of the standards of the industry. You're getting like technical voiceover analysis of their swing and then you're giving them some drills to work on like what should people hope to expect from a good online lesson for sure what i do is i attach a voiceover to their golf swing i'll pull up both swing videos down the line in face on a lot of times there's other stuff we're looking at too at the same time and based on that based on the information they gave me i always send them a questionnaire in advance that's no different than the type of questions i would ask somebody who i'm meeting for the first time in person I take all of that information, I put it together, and I give my best analysis of what I think is wrong with your golf swing. I'll point it out on the videos. I'll draw lines out. I'll showcase stuff. And then I typically film a separate video of me on camera, and I'll go through a repeated process of what I just explained on the voiceover, but now I'm showcasing it visually because some people need to learn it by seeing it, and it's easier for them to process the information I'm giving when they can see it visually. And then the last, let's say, five minutes of that video of me on camera, I'll go over the drill and I'll go over how to actually go about the drill, which I think the how to go about it is as important as what you're working on. And it's a huge mistake that people make is they know what the drill is. They have no clue how to apply it, how often to practice it, 
where to start with, faster swings, slow swings? Am I pausing in certain areas? Whatever. Am I just doing it at full swing and all that? In mine, because I'm much more structured now than I was when I first started doing them now six, almost six years ago, I will always have follow-up Zoom calls with players, if even for 15, 20 minutes, just so that if they have any questions that they can follow up with, I'd be happy to answer them in a discussion face-to-face. A lot of times I'll have them hit a couple balls or show me like a five-minute routine of them practicing it, but I'm actually watching it on the Zoom call. And so my goal when it comes to an online lesson is I'm trying to recreate as much of an in-person experience as possible without me actually being there. And if I can watch them hit balls and I can provide the information and we can have a discussion back and forth, it doesn't matter if I'm physically there or not. You know, there is always ways to get players into positions without me actually bending them there in real life. And to be honest, the more experience I've had with online lessons, the less I probably force people into positions in person because I've found ways to achieve it without me needing to be there and actually manipulate their body parts because I've had so much of that online that now it's like, even if the person's in front of me, I don't necessarily need to bend them there. If I use certain keywords or I explain it a certain way, I know that maybe they'll, they'll get it on their own, you know? And the more online lessons I've given, and I think this is a pro on the coaching side, is the more online lessons I've given, the more efficient I've been with creating plans for players to work on after the fact, because I do it so often with everyone who comes and sees me. Because in person, you can kind of get away with it. Not always. If a person's seeing you regularly enough, you don't necessarily always need to create some elaborate practice plan for them. But when someone's not seeing you in person, you want to make sure they're absolutely going about it the right way. And so in a situation like that, I, I've become much more efficient in in how to get them to train. And we'll talk about that, obviously. Let me pepper in another question yeah. there, because this was something we got in from Twitter, and it kind of correlates to this, I guess, is perhaps the con of an online lesson. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you're only limited to video yeah. down the line and from the side. You're not necessarily seeing their ball flight, although you could ask the player and you can, I'm sure your eye can deduce what their ball flight is at this point based on their their swing matchups. What about launch monitor data? I know you work with TrackMan, you have an indoor studio, you work with players outdoors where you're seeing the ball travel as well. Is that launch monitor feedback as valuable to you anymore? Would you prefer that in a perfect world or are you okay with just seeing the video of the swing at this point? Like, what do you think you lose by not having that? First of all, you lose a lot for sure, but I would say it's no different to in-person. The launch monitor data is more valuable to me the better the player is. A person who's sending me a video online who's cutting across the ball by what looks to me on camera by 15 degrees, I don't need a launch monitor to know what's going on (laughs) and that their ball flight is probably not very efficient. So what I would say is I don't genuinely go into every single online lesson I give with the expectation that I'm going to ask for launch monitor data, but the better a player gets or the more improvements we start to see, then I start to ask for it more often. Obviously, if it's a better player who's coming and seeing me, I'm asking for it right away. Because a better player, the odds are you're trying to manipulate the spin rate by 500 to 1,000. You're trying to manipulate the attack angle by a couple degrees. We can make guesstimations based on the videos and based on the information. We don't know for sure exactly where those numbers are without having that report. So with better players, I would say that's the case. If a, if a higher handicap comes and sees me online, I don't need a launch monitor report to know that they're stuck way under the plane, cutting way across the ball, topping every shot, shanking a play. The obvious really, really big flaws that are on the extreme sides, you don't need a launch monitor report for that. So yes, there is a con in the sense that you don't always have that data, but at the same time, I don't believe it's necessary to always have it. 
I think that's a fair point. I mean, granted, I'm not a swing instructor, but just anecdotally watching golfers all these years, I've learned a decent amount about the swing. And yeah, I I would concur with that. If I see a 15 or 20 handicap, I just see them getting into positions that are so not functional <laughs> to getting into a more functional impact position that it, it, it's obvious that what needs to be fixed. Now, again, I don't have the experience to communicate to that. Then that's where you guys come in. So yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I've I haven't done online lessons myself. The last instructor I worked with was probably eight or nine years ago, but we were texting videos back and forth at that point, and it was helpful. I was kind of showing him where I was. He's like, "All right, that's better," but I want you a little bit closer here, and it, it certainly was helpful getting that feedback. So I guess getting back to the original question is like, how do you find an instructor? Me, my opinion is that. Yeah, reputation and word of mouth is super helpful. Certainly someone whose communication style resonates with you. If it's someone who's just teaching one version of the golf swing and that's, you know, not jiving with you, run in the opposite direction. And if worse comes to worse, if you can't find someone locally, I don't think the online stuff is so bad anymore. And of course, you can always uh, purchase Adam's stuff that we're always plugging on the show. I'll give you a little plug there, Adam, where you can kind of do some uh, skill-based drills and help your help your skill and, and technique in the process. Probably we have a lot of other questions to get to, and I know your time is limited. Is there anything off the top of your head? I know you had some other probably points you want to make. Can I give you an opportunity to make another point here, Shaheen, or you want me to fire another question at you? When it comes to online lessons you're talking about? Or any, anything in general, just how to have a more successful process with an instructor in general, like anything that comes to the, to the top of your head. But I've got some other questions here if, if nothing's popping okay, up. Okay, right here's now. one simple comment that we'll make. If you are going to take a lesson with a coach, please be open to what the coach is telling you. There's a lot of people who come into a lesson very close-minded. There is some very obvious huge issues with your golf swing. Yeah, but I don't want to change this. Yeah, but I don't want to change that. Yeah, but I've tried that before and it didn't work. Okay, so if the five biggest issues you have in your golf swing you're not willing to touch, well, the odds are your swing is not going to get much better. I mean, I can apply all the band-aids I want to your golf swing, but if those major flaws continue to exist at some point, you're wasting your time. Why are you here? And as much as we don't like to admit it, our reputation is as much on the line as the player's improvement when it comes to coaching. If you are going to coach players who are not going to put the work in after or are not going to listen to you and be very close-minded, they're going to go out and play golf and not improve. And they're going to tell everybody around that they know that they're taking lessons with Shaheen Nakjavani or Adam Young. And guess who looks bad in that situation? You or the player who didn't improve after taking lessons. So the truth is, and I'm not afraid to say this, I drop players all the time. Because if you are not going to give me the time of day, I'm not going to give you my time. And that's the way it works. It's very simple. I'm busy enough to be able to make that decision. I'm very grateful for that. But the truth is, please come into lessons open-minded. There are certain things that you might not be physically capable of doing. That's totally fine. We'll work around it. But don't tell me you're not willing to make an adjustment to an extremely obvious flaw if it's like the number one contributor to your problems. I mean, it just doesn't seem like it makes too much sense to me. What else do you think makes a great pupil? So I've got a list here and the, like you said, the openness or willingness to experiment with something without fear, uh, the openness to actually listen to the instructor as well. What other traits 
do you do you enjoy in a player you know at, at the end of a lesson we can often have two lessons right one where we feel drained after like oh that was hard work mm-hmm. and another one where we're like oh god i could have kept going for 10 hours with that pupil what what are the differences for you somebody who asks a lot of questions back i genuinely like like i would yeah. love to just talk with players for an hour about their golf swing and have them hit balls for 10 minutes and I could argue that that person might gain more from that lesson than just hacking at 150 balls in front of me in a 60-minute window. Like, it's just, you know, there are so many people who think that the quantity of shots is what's important. I completely disagree. What's most important to me in a one-hour lesson is that you leave with a really good understanding of where your problems are and how to go about fixing them. Because the odds are it's going to take more time than the 60 minutes to get it done anyways. So if a player can ask me a lot of questions back, the second you have heard something from the instructor in front of you that you're uncertain about, or if you have a follow-up question to something that came up during your conversation, ask it. I love to talk about the golf swing with my players. I find that way more beneficial than being in dead silence, like I said, for a whole hour and just watching them hit balls over and over again without any back and forth. The more back and forth you give me, the more it shows me your willingness to actually learn and understand exactly what we're diving into with their golf swing mechanically and i love that you're saying about that kind of reminds me of a blog post i wrote about it was titled the best golf lesson ever and it was just about how early on in my career i would talk about or i I would deem whether a golf lesson was good or not based on the results within that lesson and as i progressed as an instructor it was more about whether the pupil understood it whether at the end of a lesson i could say right that pupil is going to go off and they know what to do now you know, the results in a lesson were almost irrelevant in that case, or even there may not have been results because it could have been pure talking and just doing drills. So, yeah, I mean, we can, even as, as instructors, we can get too wrapped up in the results. And I mean, it's, it's fun to get good results, definitely. But I was in Toronto for work a couple of weeks ago, and I gave a lesson to a player who was just about to leave for the Latin American PGA Tour, the new season. And he might have hit eight balls in a 90-minute lesson with me. I had four coaches shadowing me, and they said it was the most fun lesson they've ever watched, and the player loved it. And a lot of a lot of our conversation was just about their game, where it's at, how to go about thinking about certain swing changes, talking about some static setup stuff, and it was honestly the most enjoyable lesson I gave that whole weekend, and he probably hit eight golf balls during that time frame. Here, here's something that, that there's a question that just kind of popped up into my head as you guys were talking about that. I think a lot of golfers go into lessons with the expectation of like that laundry list of swing changes. So, you know, at the beginning of the episode, you're saying, oh, we can't have seven checkpoints. We need to start with one static one and one, you know, kind of mechanical change. Mm -hmm. And I think in my experience, I've been able to shadow some great swing coaches and, and be around what I consider to be top minds and i think all of them share the common trait that they're confident enough in their ability to get a golfer better that sometimes they don't need they, they say some something so simple or like you said in that lesson you only hit eight balls where i guess you're wrestling with this expectation they're like oh i'm showing up you better give me you know 10 or 20 checkpoints to work on versus you're like hold on we're just going to give you this one thing can you talk a little bit about that struggle? Because I'm sure that that's happened quite a bit in both of your careers. Yeah. I, I would say that you can't always put the blame on the student in that situation because it's just a lack of awareness of what a, a lesson entails. A lot of people sure. take lessons for the first time. They don't necessarily know what to expect. 
And all they can go off of is the fact that they see improvements on the internet and they're expecting to have seven improvements in that lesson, which might require seven swing changes. So that's what their expectation is, right? What defines a good lesson is that a player is going to leave there with a full understanding of what to do, how to do it, more or less a time frame of how long they should do it before they see you again, right? How many reps to put in. The less confident, and this kind of relates to what you just said, like the less confident I find I was as a coach when I first started out, which obviously I was much less confident than I am now, the more emphasis I would put on seeing a good result for the player because I as the coach felt like if a player leaves this lesson without actually seeing an improvement right away in the ball flight, they're going to freak out and never want to come back and see me. And so I was defining my skill as a coach to a very quick fix based swing change, right? Like within, there's a 60 minute window, there's already a problem there, which is that you're putting a time constraint on improvement, which shouldn't exist to begin with. And you need to somehow figure out and see a consistent improvement in it in a 60 minute window. I mean, you start talking to the student about their game. If it's the first time you see them, it's going to take you 10, 15 minutes before figuring everything out and knowing how to communicate with them and learning that process. And through talking with them in the first five, 10 minutes, it takes me that time to figure out how I can communicate best with that person. Then you're going to spend 15 minutes explaining their problem. You're half an hour into a lesson, right? Now you have... 15 minutes of them working on it for the first time, which the results are not going to be perfect right away. You're telling me that within the last 10, 15 minutes, they're supposed to see perfect results consistently like this. It's just so unrealistic to think about in the now that I'm at this stage of my coaching career, where I'm much more confident that I don't rely on that to define what a good lesson is. I'm going to relate this now to the player. A student goes into it. That is their expectation. So the problem is, is that it's always our job as coaches on communicating best to get them to learn differently. Like I want someone to come into that lesson when I said open-minded, meaning like whatever I tell you, just take that and listen and let's bounce back and forth with those ideas. Because if you just come in with like, hey, your wrist angle sucks and this needs to change or hey, your swing's over the top. Let me put an alignment stick in the way and watch you hit balls for 50 minutes. What did that person gain? I mean, that person could have learned that on YouTube. They didn't need to come see me on the internet. They didn't need to come see me in person to to actually get better, right? I, I, I had this conversation with someone recently. It's like, if you are able to get better in the lesson, okay, but the second you go on the golf course, you see something that you weren't expecting or you go back to your old habits, how valuable was that lesson? My job as a coach is to teach people the ability to self-correct when things will inevitably go wrong on the golf course at some point because there's just way too much timing in a golf swing no matter how much timing you want to remove to, to trust that it's going to be consistent every day. It's just it's unrealistic. If I'm doing a good job as a coach, I want that player leaving there so that when that happens on the golf course, they'll know, okay, Shaheen told me I'm going to hit blocks because this is likely to happen. I'm going to hit pull draws because this is likely to happen. Maybe I should put a little more emphasis on this field when I'm seeing that. Or they'll have something to rely on. If I just put an alignment stick in the way in the lesson and give them seven things to think about and they're doing it amazing in the session for an hour – and they're hitting straight balls, and then they go on the golf course, the alignment stick's not there, so that obstruction no longer exists. They're going to go right back to their old DNA, see a ball flight, or even see something new potentially. They're not going to know how to go about changing it anymore. So what happens? Well, then you didn't do a good enough job as a coach because they don't know what to do when they're on the golf course when things go wrong. And so 
my job as a coach is like always to communicate that. So it's a constant battle. Like you said, like people go in with certain expectations as a student. It's my job to communicate what those expectations should be and to rid them of any bad one they have. Some people come in and their standards are set so ridiculously high on their improvement. I had a guy come in once. The guy gained 15 yards per club. He was like significantly straighter. He hated slicing. Now he's hitting draws for the most part. Everything improved and he almost left there like discouraged. So like, at, some, at some point, it's like, dude, I'm not a magician. I can't make, wave a magic wand for you and like have you go from a 20 handicap to a two overnight. Like, what are your expectations out of the lesson? Now, maybe it was my fault that I didn't communicate that well enough for the player. Maybe the player was just too hard-headed and the really expectations were too unrealistic. But I think that battle is always going to exist because people just don't understand what to expect out of a lesson. Yeah, I've had a similar lesson once where I, I gained like 15, 20 yards with the player and reduced their dispersion. And they they were unhappy because it wasn't technical enough, the the lesson. Like, what are we defining? At that point, what are we defining as an improvement in that lesson? Are you defining it by the fact that you know, you, you didn't do seven changes to your body or are you defining it by the fact that result speaks for itself, which is what you should be basing the improvement on? Yeah, I think what you said about, you know, you talked about self-correction on the course, which is a topic Adam and I constantly discuss. And I think one of the benefits to having, you know, if you get into a good relationship with the swing coach is understanding your tendencies. Why, what are the matchups in your swing that are functional and then what happens when they get out of whack and understanding the difference between the two, seeing that in your ball flight or other feedback you can get in practice around the course, and then knowing what adjustments you can make on the fly if necessary in a round. Like we constantly talk about that. That's like one of the, the greatest, and you'll never solve it completely, but it's, it's, it's the biggest puzzle in golf because every day you show up with I think you show up with similar tendencies, but they they change on you a little bit every day, how you're presenting the face of the club, the path, attack angle. Like these things are changing a little bit each day and it's enough to turn a few drives into out of bounds or a few missed greens. And that's what I, I think makes golf such an interesting game. But I, I think when I think about what can someone get out of a lesson, it's understanding your matchups and your tendencies as a golfer hopefully get those into more functional territory. You, know, you you guys are obviously extremely good at that. And then almost teaching the player how to be their own coach on the course, not rendering yourself useless, but maybe not making you as important to them over time. And you guys luckily are popular enough that you'll have more students come in. Adam, you got a point here. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say helping players understand their own solutions as well. So, you know, with a long-term relationship with a pupil you're going to help them i call it algorithms develop their own algorithms so if this happens with the ball flight then you're going to do this and those algorithms may change slightly over time you know but you can work that into the mechanical changes as well as shaheen was talking about earlier if this happens with your ball flight then you maybe need to feel more of this and so i will pose those scenarios to people i'm like okay at the end of a lesson i'll say right if you are on the golf course and you see the ball flare out to the right what are you going to do and their answer back is going to tell me how well they understood the lesson. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's for, for me, when, when a player has algorithms for the main three faults that we talk about, then they, they're very self-sufficient. You know, you know, they're not going to go too wrong on their own. That doesn't necessarily mean that, that we become obsolete as a coach, though. You know, we can help them evolve their algorithms over time and refine them.
It's the famous phrase of you're coaching yourself out of a job, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Shaheen, in terms of like practice plans, I've seen you post about this online. I think it's a really good point. So you can go on YouTube and find a a bunch of great like anti-slice or anti-hook drills. Or like you could type in any swing fault and you're going to get some type of drill. And essentially you're playing kind of pin the tail on the donkey and hoping you're getting the right one to match up with your swing. And and you do an excellent job of communicating kind of like all the caveats that exist in the golf swing, which are virtually endless. So what are your thoughts on kind of like swing drills and how do you use them? Like, do you have like a library of them and you're like, all right, I'm going to use this one on this player because I see this tendency. Like, how do you view that when you give your players your practice plans in between lessons? I definitely think that having a library as a coach can be useful. I mean, I I don't know if I would call it a library, but I have, let's say, albums in my phone of just exercises or just routines or a similar type of issue to a player and how they went about it. I'll have as much, I guess, video feedback, if you want to call it that, or drills or exercises as possible that I can always pull one out and associate it to somebody doesn't mean that every single person who comes and sees me who slices the ball, this is the one drill. But it's like I have a framework of 25 different drills, depending on 25 different examples of slicing. And the odds are you're going to fall within one of those 25. And if the chance is that you don't fall within one of those, then I'll film a new video. And now I have 26 examples in my phone, right? So I always like to keep those. I think they can be very valuable as a coach. I think it's important to be very efficient when you're a coach with getting information back to your student quickly. It helps me to do that. But I do believe it's important to give people examples. And to be honest, when it comes to practice plans, I also do not believe that just because your problem is so-and-so that there's only one drill for you to do. I do believe that you can rely on four or five different drills that will essentially accomplish the same objective. Now, the way I would communicate that with the student would be everybody's feel is very subjective. I don't know how comfortable you're going to be with this specific drill. You might just not like that feeling. And it's very possible. It happens all the time, even more so with tour players who have like amazing awareness, right? You give them a drill and they're like, dude, this drill sucks. I hate this. Like, there's no way I'm able to feel that. All right, fine. No problem. That drill immediately goes in the garbage. And guess what? We're pulling another one out of the hat, right? So I not only have different drills for different problems, but I also will have a library of different drills for the same problem. So Maybe you can feel this if you're trying to, you know, if you come out of the shot and your left shoulder gets too high through the ball, maybe you can feel something with the right shoulder. Maybe you can feel something with the left shoulder. Maybe you can focus on the left hip. Maybe you can focus on how your pressure is being applied to the floor. I'll have a lot of different ones. I'll give them some of them at a time, which ones that I believe are typically more commonly used and people tend to like those feels more. If they don't like it, that's totally okay. I always tell them, don't get discouraged. We have so many of them that we can pull out. And the odds are, if you give them enough options that all have the same objective in mind, they're going to find one feel within those that clicks the most. So I tell them, test these out. Which one do you feel you connect with the best? And which one do you feel gives us the best representation of what we're trying to accomplish with your body or a club? If this one, hey, dude, look at this. When you were feeling this, look how much better that club was moving now. You might not like the feel, but if you like the way it looks on camera, maybe you will like the feel or connect to it more at some point. Those two variables I find are so important because if a player doesn't like a drill, they ain't going to do it. And especially if you don't see enough of a change using the drill, then that drill just doesn't connect with the player well enough and you need to find something else that works. Yeah, I would say 
maybe coming from the student's perspective, my advice to someone who's, who is working with an instructor, maybe you're not, I would ask for these. I don't necessarily think all instructors provide this necessarily. Sometimes the instruction can be like so mechanically based. They're just like, oh, just go out and try and hit this position over and over again. And it's like, you know, I think the player can kind of flounder and get bored with that. So to me, one of one of the most bang for your buck, literally, would be if you're not getting this, ask for some type of practice plan, some type of structure being like, hey, I'm willing to put, you know, the 60 minutes in two or three times a week on the range on this. Like, what do you want me to do? Like that, that is, I, I think mostly not all of what you're paying for, but a lot of it is like you are paying someone to give you customized practice advice, so to speak. On on the structure of of practice, obviously everybody knows I'm I'm big on that. I mean, it depends on the type of person. Even myself, I've written a book on practice, but when I practice myself, I I can be a little bit haphazard in what I do. And that's okay as well. I think as long as you're getting a nice blend, a nice balance of different types of practice, and you can use your instinct a little bit to guide you as to what you need a little bit more. But I obviously want people to have technical practice in their in their plan. So there may be a, a technique drill that they're going to do. And during that, their entire focus, the entire goal is, am I going to make this movement? It's not, can I hit a good shot? It's not, can I get a good outcome? It's not, can I even make impact uh, good necessarily? It's, can I do the movement how I want it to? And so there, there are plenty of times to do that. Obviously, during the winter, uh, that could be a better time to do it. But you can even structure that through the season as well if you're intelligent. We also want some time where we're zoning in directly on impact as well because we know that creates the outcome. And so, you know, John and I are big on on doing that kind of stuff. And we also want times where people are just getting into the playing mindset. So I will schedule, especially around tournament time when they've got a big tournament that they want to peak for, uh, there's going to be probably a tapering off of the technical stuff and we're going to work more on outcome games. You know, let's hit a driver here, then a wedge and then, you know, do your full routine with this. We're going to have a target. We're going to play a game, see how many you can get in a row down here. Or what me and John do is play on the simulator and we play actually actual simulated rounds of golf on the, on the simulator. So there are times for all of those things. Hard technique work, uh, more impact focus work, and then more simulating the game work. I think you can almost even separate those typically into the same order too, right? Where a lot of times, you know, a player's come in and see you, the first thing you're doing is you're making a technical change to their golf swing. So that's typically going to be the first thing they're going to do is go to the range after. And based on their schedule, you're going to create some sort of a game plan for them on that technical block practice that Adam's talking about. And then at some point, well, now we need to start testing this block practice. Can you do this without the aid of a training equipment, right? Can you do this if your only thought process is the target in front of you? Are you able to do this while still playing golf? And that falls back into the same conversation we had earlier of it's a step-by-step game plan Well, that step-by-step plan is obviously going to start with you making the technical change, but it doesn't mean that your skill level with that technical change is going to be at 100 right off the bat. The truth is you're always going to diminish in skill a little bit at first when you're making an improvement technically, and then hopefully, obviously, that comes back over time. The thought I always have about technique in general practice is that because most golfers are not taking lessons and are not getting customized advice on what technique can suit 
their ball flight and their tendencies better. You know, if you're going at it alone and you're not getting lessons and you are doing that technical block practice that we're talking about without the aid of a professional, that's when we get into the territory where like you might be making yourself worse if you're just like cruising YouTube and looking for the next thing and week to week. Like that's when I would tell the player like, well, you're just kind of wandering the desert here. I I would go more towards like the skill-based stuff because I think that gives you a better chance of improving versus being your own swing coach without any technical knowledge. So that's why I am such a huge proponent of lessons is because you can introduce that efficient technical practice into your practice routine because you have a better chance of a professional eye looking at it. So that that's the point I'd make on it is like, I, I think technical changes certainly have a place in practice plans, but it better be the right ones and the relevant ones. And we've, you know, there's, there's always the next technical thing as well, though. So even once you ingrain something, there's a a never ending list of things we can do to improve and refine our techniques. So you need to know a little bit when to be, if, if you jump straight back into that early stage of learning again, and you're constantly there, you will see improvement, but you're never going to be playing at your peak at the same time. So we do need to recognize there may be times throughout the season where we, we, step back from technical improvement and we go more towards the playing stuff as well you know and that might not be a full technical abandonment it's just you know tapering down instead of doing 10 hours a week of pure technical work you might drop it down to one or two and spend another eight hours doing the the playing stuff instead yeah it's really so player dependent like their skill level experience their knowledge of their swing that rabbit hole can run deep i would argue us as coaches experience that the most with tour players i mean it's a constant battle between how many technical changes do you want to give someone who's already very accomplished versus retaining enough skill in their game so that they have the ability to put a number up after four rounds of golf that was that i'm so glad you brought that up because i I wrote that down on my piece of paper here Um, i wanted to get your perspective on that because you do work with you know pro golfers champions tour players Mm -hmm. corn fairy tour pga tour players and you work with absolute beginners too so you're you are seeing the full spectrum of golfers maybe too complicated of a question but like yeah what's the big difference of working like like you said like a, a a you know, I, I when I watch tour players practice and I'm looking, they're like analyzing their swing. I watch Adam Scott looking at his swing on video camera. I'm like, what the hell is this guy looking for? I mean, that was just me as a fan being like, this guy's perfect. But like, what's the big difference in, in that? Like what you see from the tour players versus like the mid to high handicappers? Well, for starters, I'll tell you that I don't think anybody's swing is perfect. I can look at any single swing of any tour player I think Adam would agree with me. There's probably something in there that you can see that you dislike as a coach that you'd probably change. And that's the same for Adam Scott or Tiger or Rory or whoever. But there's an expense to that, right? Of course, which is why the follow-up to that is (laughs) just because you see problems in a golfer's swing does not mean that you can change the problems that you see within a golfer's swing. There are certain things that you have to understand and accept as a coach with when you get more experience of working with great players that they will never change whether that is because you've tried and the golfer suffered too much i mean how often have we seen guys win majors or tournaments or be extremely consistent in the next year they disappeared off the face of the earth because you found out that they were working on a swing change you know imagine that a guy terrifying like, absolutely terrifying i mean a guy time. like martin keimer goes out and wins 
a major and then disappears and you're talking about a major when you're doing that. Now imagine somebody with one tenth of his skill level who can't even break 90 is going to go through that process and expect to sustain his game or her game. It's just unrealistic. When you're going through a big change, odds are there's going to be a small period where the player is going to be uncomfortable. So when it comes to, to tour players, I find the scheduling becomes very, very important because anytime you have a window of three, four weeks, you have to take advantage of that time to make some form of an adjustment that you obviously cannot do if the player is working three, four weeks in a row. Because the truth is, the more tournament golf that a player does, the more they're going to fall back into their old habits over time. The first week, they're going to do 90% of the new movement. The second week, they're going to do 80% of it. By week four in a row, they're doing only half of what you had just spoke to them about. Because over time, they get more and more comfortable and fall back into their old tendencies. It's a constant battle of, I mean, when it comes to tour players, it is a constant battle of just trying to sustain whatever swing change you're giving them and not let them fall back into old patterns. Because a guy like Stephen Ames that I've been working with for four years now, if I don't talk to him for three months and all he does is go out and play golf, I guarantee you his swing is going to look pretty close to what it was from four years ago when we barely spoke to each other. Now, that doesn't mean that he can't get it back a lot quicker. He can probably go back to the newer pattern a lot easier now than he could in the first six months, right? Like it might have taken him at the beginning two months to feel comfortable with it. It might take him a week to get back to his newer swing changes that we did. But there's always going to be regression with tour players over time when they're playing in big events. And a big event just meaning a professional tournament where there's ridiculous amount of unfathomable amount of money on the line for these people, right? So... It's a constant battle, and I find that like changing a player on tour is more about just sustaining minor changes over longer periods of time than it is about like looking at them and being like, "Hey, dude, your club face is ten degrees open. We're gonna make it ten degrees close and just hope for the best." Like, man, no chance because that player is doing a lot of things at the bottom to make that ten degrees open face at the top work at impact. Now you make them 10 degrees close at the top and they're still going to do all those changes that they did before at the bottom. And now their ball flight is way offline because they are so talented that they have built everything around the tendencies they have to make it functional. You can't just change that overnight. And a player who's playing in tournaments, you can't even change that over months on end. So it's a constant battle when it comes to really good players of just trying to sustain minor changes over time. And whenever you have gapping in their schedules, taking advantage of that. And like I said, over time, Getting them back to their newer pattern will be easier and easier and quicker and quicker to get to. But there's always going to be some bouts of regression when they're playing a lot of tournaments. Yeah, with lesser players, you can often just make one change and you bring them to function. You know, that wide open face slicer, you you close the face and all of a sudden that 50-yard slice is now a, a fade onto the target. Whereas when you've got a player who has functional matchups, so a good player... They may have something in their swing that you want to change. Well, for every change that you make, you're going to have to make at least one more change. Uh, and that could be directly, as in you're giving them two things, which is very difficult, cognitive overload, or you give them the one thing and you hope that the other thing self-organizes with enough, with enough practice. So yeah, it's, it's a very difficult task. But on the, on the topic that you're talking about, I like to lighten it as a, I call it rubber band theory. So, you know, you have your movement, and this applies to good players and, and complete beginners as well. Not complete beginners, but uh, high handicappers who've been playing quite a long time. They've got their movement, and it's almost like you're attached to that by a rubber band. And to go into a new movement, it requires a hell of a lot of effort to stretch it into that new movement. And you'll always get pulled back to the old one, whether it's an hour later, a day later. If you're not thinking about it, you'll get pulled back to the old movement. 
But over time, you go back into that new movement enough time that that rubber band gets weakened. And so you, it becomes easier and easier. You're always going to get pulled back to the old patterns, but it gets easier and easier. And for some people, that rubber band can snap. You know, if, especially if someone hasn't got a lot of ingraining. I don't think that ever happens for, for tour players or players who've got so much experience under their belt. Like my patterns are always going to be my patterns. Like, like you said, if I have three months off, I'm going to start dropping it under plane. It's just what I, what I do. And it'll always be the case. You may have to work on the same things for the rest of your golfing life, really. And that's okay too. Here's my next question. What would you do with my takeaway and how many years would you work on it? Just kidding. <laughs> I would tell you what, I would never touch that takeaway. Yeah, well, I me. think, yeah, well, I think, I remember I texted you. I don't send my swing out too often for a number of reasons, but I remember you saw it and you you, you freeze framed it on the takeaway. You said, the the club I've never seen, <laughs> you said, I've never seen a golfer hit this position before. But yeah, I guess I'm a, I'm a, prime example of what would I stand to gain from fixing my takeaway? It could destroy the I rest mean, honestly, of my honestly, nothing. Life. I think long-term, yeah. it would only hurt you if you changed it at this point. Yeah. I think for me, like swing changes and like, should you work with an instructor? It's more of a, I guess it's an analysis of what do you stand to gain versus what do you stand to lose? Of course, the more skilled player who's already performing very well, a tour player is an extreme example of this. They stand to lose a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start rattling around in their swing and we've seen that. And but, you know, if you take a more beginner to intermediate player who's really struggling, keeping their ball in play off the tee, hitting more greens, you know, chunks and skulls around the green with wedges like there's a lot of room to work with. And I think for the most part, initially, at least, if you could find the coach that you like and you're and you're willing to put in perhaps several months of concentrated work with them, I do think you stand to gain a decent amount. And then from that point, perhaps like you're not getting exponential gains. It's like leveling off a bit. So maybe you're in this maintenance period where you're requiring check-ins and, and certainly what you guys described is like you, you will revert to the initial tendencies that were not functional and that that is the constant battle of golf. Well, here I have, I have two follow-up points I want to make to this. Number one, to go back to your question about like the difference between changes of a tour player or that extreme versus like a beginner, a beginner has far less to lose. So you can make bigger changes in the middle of the schedule because the odds are they're not really playing great golf to begin with. You can tack on huge changes and let them go play in. You know, you might have, you know, their their background might go from 100 to 110, but their good round might go to 85, 90. They have so much more to gain versus what they're risking compared to the better player where they're risking a lot more for such a small amount to gain. And that kind of leads me into my next point. Like people have to start understanding that improvement. I always like to look at it like a pyramid or a triangle. Tier one is huge. It's wide. There's a lot you can improve and you're going to gain a lot from it. Tier two then gets a little bit smaller. It's a little more narrow. It's not as wide. There's less to improve and there's less to gain from that. By the time you get to tier four, five, six, and you're at the tip of the triangle, you're risking that entire triangle for very minor adjustments. So you always have to, it's, it's, I don't want to call it a gamble, but like there is a huge risk for a very small reward. So the better you become as a player, the more you should like not worry. I don't want to attach negative connotations to it, but like the more you should be careful with what you're choosing to improve. For example, John, who's a scratch golfer who has this massively inside takeaway, has so much to lose in his scoring ability and his skill 
versus what is he gaining really? The aesthetics of a takeaway that looks more like less inside. Does it really matter? Is it going to make your scores improve long term? You have to weigh those risks because those risks are not equal depending on your score, right? So when you're working with a player, like if I'm working with a beginner, I can change their swing whenever in the middle of the calendar over the winter time because they have so much to gain from it that it's worth that risk. But when you're dealing with better players, you got to start being way more specific with not only what you're changing, but the timing of when you're making those changes as well. Yeah, those are wonderful points to make. And I agree with all of them. And, and certainly for people who are listening to this, I know we have listeners who are all over the place in terms of their playing ability. Yeah, I, I think it boils down to, I prefer as a good rule of thumb, like the more skilled and higher performer it is, like the smaller refinements you're going to make because you don't want the pyramid to tumble. So I think that's a, that's a wonderful rule of thumb. And like, yeah, I personally have not gotten a swing lesson, I think, eight or nine years. I think you guys would be my first. <laughs> if, if something went drastically wrong in my swing that I couldn't figure out with my own self-correction tools, like I would trust one of you guys to take a look. But I I almost resist that. I mean, I could... I, I've met enough people in the golf industry and smart minds on the golf swing that... Yeah, I could be like, hey, take a look at this. But at the same time, like, I'd be like, oh, well, I don't want to risk what I've got because I have a lot of trust in what I'm doing, however unorthodox that takeaway is. So, yeah, I, I find that this is an interesting topic of like, what do you stand to gain and what do you stand to lose? There's this interesting balance of, well, definitely with better players, you stand a lot to, to lose. Uh, but at the same time, better players are, are able to recalibrate quicker. You know, it's, it's good working with good players because when you make a swing change, all right, the first few might be bad, but they can figure out how to find the center of the face and figure out how to get it back on target much quicker. So I, I do agree as a coach, you've got to be really, really careful with what you're, what you're choosing to change and whether you change it at all. But there is that slight advantage there with the better players as well. Well, I'll, here, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate. Yes, there is an advantage to it because they're able to calibrate a lot sooner, but that also means that there's a risk involved at the same time because they're able to do that change so much faster than other people that if it's not necessarily the right change, they might be screwed twice as fast. Excuse my language, but like, right? So it becomes almost even more, like you have to worry even more about the change you're going to give a tour player because you know that they'll be able to, like their spatial awareness is so good, they'll be able to do it even quicker than a higher handicapper who has no clue, you know, how to move the club differently, for example. I, I, I can't imagine that there's a right answer to it because there's so many examples, especially in, in tournament golf, where you have, you know, players like Tiger who, you know, went through how many, he went through a major swing overall after, you know, winning the Masters and it turned out great for him. And then you have, you know, you look at some other golfers' careers and you're like, why did they do that? It's like so sad to watch. So it's it's so hard to diagnose that or, or predict what's going to happen. So I, I I mean I guess we're trying to give some rule of thumbs based on your guys' experience, but I, I don't believe there's a perfect answer. I know you're running out of time here. Can I ask you? Can I shoot another question at you, Shaheen? Mm -hmm. This might be a difficult one, but from a player's perspective, when do you think it might be the time to pull the plug on a relationship with an instructor? Like sometimes like things just don't work out. Mm -hmm. Like the players, maybe it's a learning style thing. Like things just don't work out for whatever reason. And I, and I hate golfers to, you know, 
spend months and months and months on something that's not going to bear fruit. And it's, it's tough to know when to pull the plug. But like, do you have any thoughts on that? My answer is pretty quick, actually. I would say like the first, second or third lesson, you don't see your results of some form. You don't understand more what you're doing. Pull it right away. You should see results happen, not necessarily in the first lesson, but within the first three lessons, there should be a an improvement in some form, whether that be speed, contact, ball flight, dispersion, whatever the case may be, you have to have a goal in mind. And if that goal hasn't even incrementally improved over three lessons, go see someone else. <laughs> Adam, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, same thing. I mean, you don't have to go out and flush every ball within three lessons. I know Shaheen's not saying that, but you, you need to no. see some kind of change in ball flight. If you're, if you're slicing it, and you're and you want to draw it if that is your goal to draw it and your instructor has not made you do that in three lessons or at least you know straightened out that slice a little bit and turned it into a fade then you know it's uh there's probably a, an error in the instructor i mean it, it can be the pupil's fault sometimes but a good instructor has so many ways of making the pupil we're very manipulative as instructors i can make a pupil do what i want them to whether it's you know being militant whether it's telling come on you're wasting my time now or whether it's you know using different feedback tools or whatever we can make a pupil do what we want really well this is the thing right is that like if you don't see the improvement from the player after the first lesson, you'll try a different method by the second lesson, right? If you don't see the experience or the, the ball flight or whatever change by the second lesson, then you start to figure out maybe they're not practicing as often or whatever. By the third lesson, you're taking a really extreme measure to improve whatever it is they're doing. And we have extreme measures that we choose not to pull out right away, but we could do it if necessary. Hey, we're going to change your alignment like crazy. We're going to whip this club way inside. Like We can do whatever we want to try to get a player to swing the club more in or out, depending on whatever it is you're doing. But I find that after three lessons, if you cannot see that improvement happen, a, a good enough coach, in my opinion, would be able to create some form of change, no matter how extreme his method is or her method. I think that's a fairly solid rule of thumb because you would have hopefully a week or two in between all those lessons and some suggestions on what to work on. And if it's just not translating well, then it just, you know, whether it's someone's the student's fault or the teacher's fault, it's just not working, that combination. I have one last follow-up. It also will depend on how close together those lessons are. But for me as a coach, I don't book people within, I mean, almost two weeks these days. And not even necessarily because of a scheduling on my end of how busy I am. I just don't think it's necessary to see a player every week. So if we're talking three lessons that happen two weeks span and two weeks span, that's a month of time that they've had three lessons, like that's enough time for them to see some form of improvement. Yeah, we've had discussions on swing changes, Adam and myself on here. And like we kind of both agreed that if you're making some type of swing overhaul, you'd want to be able to like be on the course playing with that and feeling pretty good with it within about a three month period. Mm -hmm. And if halfway through that process, like you're not seeing any results, uh uh. <laughs> time to go, no time to go yeah. find someone else. All right, so I promised you an hour and a half, and that's that's where we're at right now. Nice. I'm glad you kept your promise because I got to jump on a call with a player. Speaking speaking of communication with a student, <laughs> time time is everything in this life. So, 
Shaheem, where can everyone find you? Just search your name. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be hard to spell, though. Yeah, that's going to, yeah, your last name might be a problem, but let, let's, <laughs> um, let's give him some Twitter handles. And yeah, so my handles are all the same on every social media. It's S-H-K-E-E-N Golf, which spells Shkeen Golf. Don't ask me where the name Shkeen came from. It's actually a nickname from friends from 20 years ago that I started the Instagram with and just never changed it. But that's pretty much it. You can find me on any social media platform through that. All right. Well, thanks for your time. I know you got to hop off, but we definitely want to have you on again and we'll, we'll definitely cover another topic, but it was awesome having you here. Yeah. Thank you, Shane. All right, boys. Good chatting. Take care. All right, Adam, it's just you and me. Do you have any final thoughts here? Do we want to do a little postscript? Yeah, you, I'll, I'll let you go ahead. I, I just, I mean, my main thoughts on lessons are, you know, I, I think, you know, finding the right instructor to work with is important, obviously setting aside enough time and having the commitment to be putting in the work in between lessons. Like I I kind of agree with what Shaheen just said that like, you don't need to be getting lessons every week. If you space them out every two to three weeks, that allows you to make some of the changes and hopefully do the drills and the practice plans that have been prescribed. But yeah, I, I'm not someone who's taken lessons recently, but I took a decent amount of them throughout the earlier stages in, in my golf life and they all helped me. I all got I got something out of every single relationship I ever had with an instructor and made me and they all made me a better golfer at different stages. So yeah, I, I I'm in I'm in favor of it. Granted that you have the right expectations going in. Hopefully we cleared up some of the, those with you in this episode. But yeah, I think it's a it's a two way street and you can't necessarily expect everything from the instructor to fix all of your problems you've got to put in the work on your side as well. And then if you're not getting maybe the practice plan or the results you're looking for, then perhaps it's time to look elsewhere. So those are kind of my main thoughts on lessons. And and I think, you know, Shaheen gave some really great points and advice. I'm with finding instructors as well. I mean, you can, the biggest thing at the moment with modern day is you just look at their social feeds. You can get an idea of who someone is, how someone teaches by looking at their social feeds. And if they don't have a social feed, then ask them, you know, send them an email saying, look, I'm, I'm looking to invest quite heavily with you, having lessons and building a long-term relationship. I just, I'd like to know a little bit about your process for improvement. How do you go about improving golfers? You know, I could give a, I, I often give a paragraph that explains my philosophy to people. And I'm sure other, pro, other pros can do that as well. If they can't, then I don't know, maybe they don't know their own philosophy enough. No, I think, yeah, having some type of preliminary conversation or asking for that is, is certainly a must. And, you, and you're going to get different things from different instructors as well. If you had a lesson with Shaheen, you're going to get something very different, I'm sure, to what, what I would teach. Not in terms of, I'm sure the mechanical stuff that we teach would be very similar, be on similar lines. We might have slightly different viewpoints or different drills to get to the same end goal. But, you know, my stuff would be very heavily skill-based and, you know, would have a very strong practice design element to it as well and Shaheen would give a, a very technical lesson as well and you'd have you know you could go with Scott Fawcett and have an awesome lesson as well that would be on a completely different end of the spectrum of uh, strategy you'd have psychology work as well I mean you could build your own team of online guys now 
<laughs> you, yeah, you, you can. And hopefully we're, we're becoming part of your team. So you want to wrap it up there? I think we're, yeah. uh, we're hitting our mark here. Mm-hmm. Adam, where can they find you as always? AdamYoungGolf.com. And John, where can people find you? Well, well, just to clarify for our listeners, you know, I'm sure you're getting emails from Sweet Spot listeners asking when, when you can give online lessons. Are you going to make yourself more available? I'm sorry to put you on the spot here, but just so people know. Yeah, I am. I am. I mean, I've, I'm just booked up at the moment. That's why it's hard. And so I don't advertise it because, you know, one email and then my month is filled up. But in January, I do have a waiting list at the moment, but in January, I've got some, some more space. So if people do want online lessons with me in January, I'm going to be, I'm going to have places available. Okay, good to hear. You can find me, John Sherman, at Practical-Golf. And as always, we want to thank our show sponsor, The Indoor Golf Shop. You can find all of your indoor golf needs at their website, which is shopindoorgolf.com. Certainly, if you're looking for a simulator for your home, your business, they are some of the top experts in the industry. As I've mentioned to other listeners on the site, go on their website and, and call them up. Ask for Brian and Wade. They've got people who will help you with the dimensions you need, what launch monitors or simulators or software suit your budget, the types of mats, the projector, all this stuff is important. I've certainly had a lot of email exchanges with many of you where I'm just saying like, hey, give them a call and ask them. They will help. So we feel you're in good hands over there. So thanks to the Indoor Golf Shop support and you can find them at Shop Indoor Golf. And of course, thanks to all our listeners. Thank you for the feedback, for the questions. Keep them coming. It helps us create content that is customized to you. And we will see you with another episode very soon.